We've all seen it a million times. And it's equally tragic every time we see it. In a moment, somebody makes a decision and then faces the consequences of the decision afterwards. Uh, They're called, in economic market terms, uh, consumer impulse buyers. That in the moment, they become convinced that their life will not be complete or full unless, and in fact, they have that product, so they buy it. If you stack together enough impulse buying, you will get yourself in a bad way financially. Um, Then there are, um, also in this same area, there are people who get in the housing market and in a moment are convinced that their life will not be complete unless they buy that house. And they will buy in that moment uh, a house that is probably uh, a little bit bigger than their budget and then they have to live with the consequence afterwards. Muirfield Village is a wonderful community in Dublin, Ohio. Jack Nicholas put his golf course in the middle of it. There are these palatial homes all around the golf course. Bobby Ray Hall, the Indianapolis 500 driver, used to live off the 7th fairway, and it's a beautiful home. And I was talking to a, a real estate person in the area once, and he told me, he said, you know what's fascinating? He says, uh, a lot of younger people have uh, bought up some of these homes, but they buy them, and they have virtually no furnishings because they they bought it in a moment dreaming that this will be great if I could get there and they get there uh, and you know if you want whatever they are you know 15,000 square feet to walk around in with you know that's that's fine but it's a decision made in the moment that looks different later junior high is a fascinating social world The girls are so much farther than the boys. The boys' pituitary glands are sleeping, slumbering joyfully. Girls, some of whom by the time they get in the eighth grade, you know, their pituitary glands done with all the work. There was a particular young lady that I went to junior high with, and she was uh, from uh, uh, a prominent family, I suppose it would be considered in the community. And she was way ahead maturation-wise of everybody else. Um, and she was a woman by the time she was in the eighth grade. And um, she was the envy of uh, the social circle. And people would want to be uh, uh, around her, her family. Well, we all noticed that she had taken a particular fancy in the science teacher, which in those days, he, he, he was kind of a leftover hippie. Uh, from that era, and uh, we were always fascinated by his hippiness, and that's, but, but they appeared to be interested in each other more than a teacher and a student, and this is the eighth grade. We, we all thought that was kind of odd, and then uh, only to find out later that uh, they shared company through her high school years, and the moment she turned 18, they got married. But it all started in a decision that she made in the eighth grade that this would be something good. It didn't end well. Uh, It ended with him in the garage with the garage door down, uh, breathing the tailpipe of his car until he didn't breathe any longer. I wondered what that decision looked like to her later. She, She made it in that moment, captured 
in the eighth grade, uh, I remember a really wonderful guy who was a successful businessman. I'd actually worked with him professionally in, in several matters. And his wife died, and it was a grievous blow, and he was lonely. And then um, he was a follower of Jesus, uh, an important layperson at his church. Then uh, there's a gal in town, had a wonderful reputation of faithfulness to Christ, and her husband died, and it was bitter. And here you had a grieving widower and a grieving widow, and uh, somebody introduced them, and they decided to take a trip together. And, uh, but they were going to do it right, you know. There were one car, two hotel rooms in the two cities they were going to or something. And um, so they, they took flight on this trip socially and uh, got halfway through the trip and decided one afternoon that the thing they ought to do was just go see the justice, the peace, and get married. So they did. And they came back in town to the shock of both families in that they were, uh, they were married. It didn't end well. It was a decision made in the moment of their vulnerability. You ever seen anybody quit work on a whim? I mean, they had a job. And by the way, every one of our jobs has hard things. And there's not a one of us sitting here that hasn't thought, you know what, I'll just pack it in this afternoon. I have had it. And... Um, you know, for a half a second, Johnny Paycheck was our favorite songwriter of all times, you know. And, and so we, uh, and, but some have followed through. They've gone into their boss and said, hey, look, here's the deal. I quit, and I'm going to enjoy it. And it felt so good. Uh, it seemed to have it on your terms, and you put your, you know, gather your stuff up in a box, and you walk out to your car, you get in your car, and you drive home, and then you shut the door, and you say, what have I just done? And what felt really good that afternoon, the next week feels just a little bit different. Some of us lay hold of the lie that Esau laid hold of that really hurt him. Now, in this series, we're looking at 10 lies that Esau laid hold of that hurt him. This morning's lie is this, lie number two, right now is the only moment that matters. Esau laid hold of that lie. And this morning, we want to look at it together in Genesis 25. Come there with me, please. As we come, I need to have a disclaimer. This is important to me. I do not want you to sit here this morning and have Satan, who's very good at being an accuser, put his arm around you and beat the daylights out of your heart, reminding you of foolish things you've done in the past that altered your life, that you've had to come to the Lord and confess your sin. And when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you have dealt with your past, and beginning with me, all of our pasts are imperfect. If you've dealt with them, don't you dare, as we go through this message, allow Satan to crawl into your heart and say, yeah, you're Esau. 
Because some of us have been Esau in the past. But God, by his grace, and through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, has washed us clean. And this morning we are free. Now, by the way, if you're here this morning and you've been Esau and you never dealt with it, don't deflect that and pretend like you have. You're not fooling God who knows your heart and knows mine. But my encouragement is to come to his grace and this fountain of cleansing found in the person of Jesus Christ. Genesis 25. Verses 27 through 34. We continue in this series on Esau. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Esau, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Let me stop reading and just say that word means red. It's red stew. So Esau's people became known as the Edomites. Back to verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this morning I want to go two different directions. One, I want to look at this history. And this history is the story of Esau who loses everything over a bowl of soup at the kitchen table. And secondly, I want to look at Esau's lie. Right now is the only moment that matters. That's a lie that, if believed, will take us down Esau's road, which we want to avoid. So first, Esau gives his future away for a bowl of red soup. It's amazing to think of that something so trivial, a bowl of red stew, would retool his future completely, and so it does. If we live like this moment is all there ever is, then we'll make Esau's mistake. And Esau is an example to avoid. Now let me say two things about Esau giving his future away at the kitchen table. First, this family system is fraught with child rivals whose parents play favorites. Boy, it's a one-two punch. We know from the birth narratives and Rebecca, the mother of these twins who sought the Lord, what's going on in my belly during pregnancy? We knew it was going to be a rivalry, that the younger was going to usurp and take over the older. We knew it was going to be a rivalry between Jacob and Esau. But look at verse 28. This rivalry is aided and abetted by a tragic parental strategy. Dad 
had a favorite. It was Esau. Mom had a favorite. It was Jacob. We know that the boys are born when Isaac is 60. So by the time Esau's out hunting by himself, you know, Isaac's working on 80, and his favored son is Esau. Maybe in response to seeing that, who knows? The text does not describe. But Rebecca got in the game, and her favorite son was Jacob. Maybe because Esau was rough and tumble. He's even described as if he's an animal who goes out and hunts animals. He's hairy all over, a rugged man. Jacob is made differently. Uh, there's one word that's used of him here that is the word calm. Uh, you couldn't say that Esau's calm. He's just, that wasn't in uh, his nature. Who knows why they picked out favorites, but they did. Favoritism frustrates a child. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children. Don't, do not provoke your children. That word provoke means to stir up animus, uh, to stir up passion. Uh, don't frustrate your children. Don't make them angry. One of the things that will embitter children is favoritism. Now, um, if you want to hear a really well-groomed uh, argument playfully for who's a favorite, you ought to hear our children talk to each other. It, it's funny. They'll, they'll get on a rant about who's the favorite, and we've heard it so much, and they'll, they'll make arguments for this one is that one, but it's, it's playful rather than pointing out what is true. This is not playful. This is pointing out what is true. And it really hurt these boys. This favoritism turned up the rheostat on the rivalry. Now, let me just ask you, as parents, are we in any way playing favorites? It won't work out well. Exhibit A, Genesis 25. Now, the second thing I want to say, as he loses everything over a bowl of soup, is that Esau mortgages his future on the momentary satisfaction of indulgence. Managing our appetites is a part of a self-disciplined life that Christ has called us to. It actually is a key to living. We have a chronic problem with this. Uh, Paul warned uh, the brothers in Philippi, he said, watch out for the men living in Philippi. He said, they, they are men, Philippians 3.19, whose God is their belly. Well, what was he saying? He was saying, those men are driven by the baser instincts of humanity, and that is not the way of Christ. You ever met anyone who runs on their appetite? It's not good fuel for living. Esau returns from hunting exceedingly sensitive to his cravings. Lisa Turkhurst wrote a book called Made to Crave. And what we have to do is send our craver to reformatory school to groom our craver to crave the right things. Because if it's left to ourselves, 
Our natural instincts will not crave godly things. And so we have to yield our members to the Lord who shapes our cravings after yearnings for Christ. Esau returns from hunting, and he's not in good shape. Verse 29, he's tired. The word is exhausted, faint, weary from exertion and hunger. By the way, managing our lives is very important. One of the most holy things we can do is get a good night of sleep. When we get really tired, when we have no margins, we get out there, we become grumpy old men, even if we're young ladies, or grumpy old men, even if we're 25. We become grumpy old men. Are you a grumpy old man? That's not godly. That's not in the fruit of the spirit. He's exhausted. One of the things that can help us in friendship, one of the things that can help us in work relationships is that we take care of ourselves. We get sleep, get some exercise, have a good frame of mind. This guy comes in having exerted himself in hunting and he is just spent. Now, for all of us, there are times when we are just spent. When we are spent, those are times to be careful. We have to be careful. He's not only tired, he's irrational. Verse 32, I am about to die. Note to all readers, he is not about to die. He's going to live a very long time. But he had convinced himself that this was it. He was going to die. He actually thought the thought that he was going to die. And the thought that he thought was not accurate or true. And it didn't help him in the moment. Do you know that we can think thoughts that are not true? Do you understand that we can embrace ideas that have no basis in reality? And so that's why we constantly have to renew our minds through the word of God so that we see what God sees about what is true and the nature of what we are experiencing. I'm about to die. Not every thought we think is true. He's not only tired. He's not only irrational. His judgment is impaired. Of what use is the birthright for me? Remember, he's a firstborn Jewish son. Firstborn Jewish sons get a double portion of the inheritance. They are the leader in the family for the next generation. What's he going to do? He's going to give it away for a bowl of red soup. He asks this absurd question, of what use is the birthright to me? Duh, you're the firstborn son. You have the envied position. What good is this to me? What, Esau? Give away your firstborn position for a bowl of soup? He's not only tired, irrational, his judgment is impaired. He's reckless. He's foolish. He doomed his future in that moment. It's amazing to think. But if we live as the moment is all there is, we'll make equally foolish choices. Now, another big theme in this passage, artfully presented by Moses, who wrote this, is this idea that the great hunter, Esau, who was the man 
who had all those heads on his walls in his man cave. You know, he, he'd killed them all. He was the great hunter. But now the great hunter is hunted down by a cunning, better hunter as Jacob hunts him down. Jacob has premeditated this. Esau comes in. He comes in like every other time he'd come in, and he is exhausted. Fancy that would be the time that Jacob would have red stew on the stove. Wafing out in the house are the aromas of a wonderful meal. He was setting him up. As soon as Esau asked about the red suit, the very first thing out of his mouth with a time word, now, is give me your birthright, now. He has thought about this. He has set the trap. Esau walks right into it, and because of his indulgence and believing the lie, is a sucker for it. Verse 31, sell me your birthright now. Jacob has his prey where he wants him. Now, in verse 32, it's the forfeiture of everything, but he asks, of what use is a birthright to me? Chapter 25, verse 33, swear to me now that you are giving it to me. Jacob is ready for that response. The plan has been realized. And then, in a fascinating way, Moses puts four verbs right next to each other in a staccato fashion. It's bam, 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 bam. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. It's over. That trivial. He gives it all away. It's artfully written. There's a sense in which Esau said, this whole birthright thing is a nothing burger. Who cares? What felt like a nothing burger to him had great import for the rest of his life. Verse 34, it is said of Esau that he despised his birthright. Flippant Esau, foolish Esau. He held it to have no value. He disdained it. He lightly esteemed what was very important. I want to speak to you if you are a child growing up in a home that is a Christian home of gospel Christianity. Are you growing up in such a home? What if you're a young adult and you're going through those years of launching from your Christian home? Do you actually care about the gospel heritage of your family or not? Can you give or take it? Despising the birthright of a Christian home is actually a thing. So this narrative brings us face to face with this lie that Esau embraced. Right now is the only moment that matters. Now, I am not saying don't live in the moment. Jim Elliott, the Wheaton graduate missionary killed by the Aka Indians as a martyr around 19, the early 1950s, he had a group of resolutions that he wrote while he was in college, and I love one of them that says, Resolve wherever I am to be all there. I love that. That's important. Have you found yourself? I have. Have you found yourself 
someplace when your mind was a million miles away? Have you found yourself with someone when you were really in another place emotionally and mentally? It's good to live within the skin of the moment. But here's the lie. Don't live exclusively for the moment as if that moment was all that there is. So live in the moment, but not for exclusively that moment. Let's unpack three observations and implications regarding this lie. First, people believing this lie make choices based on their senses. Esau felt exhausted. Esau smelled the food. Esau was driven by his appetite. Esau's flesh is pounding out a rhythm that dictated to him the notion that if I could only have some of that red stew, then my life will be fine. What drives us? What cravings and appetites control the agenda of our lives? Pleasure, ease, fulfillment, whatever's comfortable. All of us gravitate naturally to whatever takes the least amount of effort. When some of the greatest realizations in life cost us the most and are found only in a cause in which we are greatly spent. Are we driven around by our feelings in our animal instincts, as a former generation would call it? Who are we? What explains why we do what we do? Don't forget the life we've been called to. Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. How driven are we by our cravings? How tuned are our cravings to crave Jesus Christ? Secondly, People believing this lie treat their future with contempt and elevate the present instant above everything. Look at verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. My friends in the investment world have introduced me to a concept Oh, and it's not like I have a lot of experience or am well-versed in this, but I've heard him talk about a notion called dollar cost averaging. There are people who put some money in the market, and uh, when the market, you know, is down some points, they get nervous. If it's down again the next day, they call their broker. On the third day, they're crying, saying, take all my money out, you know. It's going to fall. It's coming now. Now's the big one. Or uh, it'll go up and up, and they'll say, oh, hey, here's some more money. It's going up. I want to get on. I want to jump on the train when it goes up. And when it starts going down, I'm going to get off the train. This will turn out better for me in the long run. And they are responding to the moment in the market where this notion of dollar cost averaging suggests that if you stay in longitudinally over time, it's going to turn out better. And that's what we're getting at with this. Lie. Eugene Peterson wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's actually a Nietzsche phrase, 
but the subtitle is Discipleship in an Instant Society. Esau loved the microwave, hated the crock pot. He was given to whatever was in the moment, in the instant. Living in the moment and only for the moment is a tragic way to live. We don't do well making decisions if that is the calculus. For six years, we lived in a parsonage in Michigan, in Lansing, Michigan, west side. Right off the parsonage was a church parking lot next to the church. A group of pine trees rimmed our house. And there was an opening in a pine tree, and we had two boys growing up. And uh, so I thought, you know what? Let's put up a basketball goal. So we put up a basketball goal, and because they were little guys, uh, something like, oh, eight and ten at the time, or seven and nine, uh, we put it up at eight feet. I thought, this is going to be so good. And, you know, they, they enjoyed it and just learned how to play a little bit. We had a lot of fun out there. But we, we discovered that in putting that basket up, suddenly the whole community found out that there was an eight-foot basket over in the church parking lot. So at night, later in the night, they'd roll up, turn their lights on, flash them up there, and get in big dunk parties. And so I'd go out the next day, walk and work, and I'd look at my rim. And rather than up like this, you know, all set, just erect like I put, it's bent down because they'd grab a hold of it and hang on it. And I was forever ringing up huffy rims. Hey, send me another rim. They tore my rim off last night. You know, after I replaced the third one, I started getting wise to them and losing the edge of my sanctification, you know, trying to figure out how to face this. I was taking up the honor of my boys who were out there. Well, and a car rolls up one night. I thought, oh, here we go again. It was interesting. They parked in a little bit of a different place, parked way back against the trees. I thought, well, what in the world's going on? But uh, I found out that uh, years before, they had put a, a big floodlight on the second floor of the house. And, uh, uh, but it hadn't worked for a while because the light was out. So I, I replaced the light. So when they rolled up there to take my basketball goal down, I could turn the light on and at least say, hey, at least I can watch you as you tear my rim off, you know. So I turned the light on and then realized that those two young people, a man and a woman in the car, were not there to play basketball. <laughs> in fact, as I turned the light on, trying to figure out what to do, you know, they're crawling over the front seat into the back seat and had, uh, they had more clothes on when they left the house. Well, uh, then I was angry. And I thought, what in the world am I going to do? And for a moment, I thought, I'll just go slit their tires. That'd be really funny. <laughs> just what, you know, just something real holy like that. Well, it wasn't long before, uh, you know, they left and make their deposit into the parking lot and leave. And I'm just disgusted. I thought of them this week. I thought, you know what? If they were 16, they'd be 48 now. Now, whatever they were thinking in that moment, in the middle of that decision, I'd love to catch them in an honest moment and say, hey, What's that decision look like 30 years later? You happy about that? You glad about that? That the right decision? Oh, I know in the moment it, it seemed so right. How?
How does that decision in that moment look now these years later? Now, by the way, let's stop. I want to remind you of the disclaimer. Isn't it fascinating that King David himself says, remember not the sins of my youth. Thank God that when we deal with our sin in repentance and faith, he cleanses us from our sin and gives us a new day. It's the wonder and glory of grace. We're here to be beside you, walk out with you no matter where you have been. But I'm urging you this morning, don't be Esau, finally. This lie untethers our decisions from consequence. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. We've looked at Galatians 6 before. He sows of the flesh. The flesh he reaps corruption. If he sows of the spirit of the spirit, he reaps eternal life. You know what Satan did in the garden? That serpent of old he's called. Genesis 3, 4, he says this. Eat this. You shall not surely die. What is he saying to her? He is smuggling into her mind the notion that there is no consequence for sin. Eat this. Who cares? It will have no effect on your future. Go ahead. You'll not die. There's no threat of consequence. The consequence is a mirage. But wisdom teaches us, skill in living teaches us to see cause and effect. To see cause and effect. To see that the decisions we are making now are having impact upon our future. Remember a friend of mine's daughter graduated from college. I said, hey, what's your daughter doing? Ah, oh, she doesn't know. Really? What's she major in? Well, she majored in that degree from which you cannot have a job or a future. And I, I, I was a little amused by it, but I could tell he was annoyed, so I didn't pursue it anymore in conversation. You know, even this week, there were some articles. Uh, college debt is now being discussed and what should be done with that. And they, were, they published an article about a, a couple of um, degrees that you can pursue. And in order to get to the finish line with the advanced degrees, it costs a lot of money. But in your lifetime, you could never possibly dig yourself out of the debt that it would take to get there. So they're asking about the propriety of this, the, the rightness of this. You see, when you buy this lie, right now is the only moment that matters, we deceive ourselves into thinking, there's no consequence. It doesn't matter. I can right now make this decision, and it will have no effect on my future. That's not true. Ask Esau. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is nothing like Esau. When Jesus faced temptation to forego the suffering of the moment and receive all the kingdoms of the world just by bowing down to Satan, he refused and kept going. In his moment of deepest anguish in Luke twenty-two forty-two, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Dear ones, he was not thinking of himself when he went to Calvary. He was thinking of me, and he was thinking of you. Greater love is no one than this. 
When Christ got to self-denial or self-sacrifice, he chose self-denial for us in our benefit. Did you hear what Dave read in Hebrews 12 too? What kept Jesus going? Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did not live in the moment and for the moment, but he lived for the future moment of being with his father. This is Esau's mistake. He did not live in each moment anticipating that at the end of each consequence, ultimately he would have to give an account to God for his life. He lived with no eternal, no even temporal thought to where is this decision taking me? It was tragic for him. And God is inviting us to avoid that tragedy by throwing ourselves on the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. How has God spoken to your heart this morning? Do you hear his affirming voice as you take the long view in life and hop into that line of a long obedience in the same direction? Do you hear him saying to you, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. With me, do you feel our weakness our susceptibility to our own instincts and appetites? Do you need that strength that God provides in Christ? No longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Have you failed? Have you repented? Don't let this be a reminder of failure if you have repented. Let it be a reminder of how great was the sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary to dismantle and take down forever the consequences of our sin. Is God making it clear to you this morning this Jesus Christ whom we follow here at Calvary. Open your heart to him. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your word to expose our hearts through your truth to healing grace. Lord, bring us home to you and to where you've wanted us to be all along, a group of people living with eternity's values in view. Work in our midst, I pray in Jesus' name.